The thought that I could instantly be delivered of sexual sin by a pastor casting a demon of lust out of me flooded me with hope. I was thrilled by the possibility of being set free. But over time, I was forced to acknowledge to myself that nothing had really changed. Lust was thriving in my heart as vigorously as ever. You struggle with a long-standing and deeply entrenched addiction to pornography and sexual sin. Temptations come on you suddenly and seem overpowering. You feel helpless to do anything but give in. You ever wonder if you are being harassed by a demon? Are the forces of Satan forcing your hand? Many men do wonder if they've opened the door and invited a demon in. That's our subject today. What role does deliverance play in freedom from porn? I'm your host, Jim Lewis. This is Purity for Life. Today we're asking the question, what role does deliverance play in a man gaining freedom from pornography and sexual sin? And even the mention of the word deliverance conjures up all sorts of images in people's minds. Obviously, if we're talking about deliverance, we're assuming there is something from which a man must be rescued, and that something is demonic influence. When you listen to the other segments in this podcast, you should be convinced that here at Pure Life, we take very literally and seriously what the scripture teaches about the nature and work of our enemy, the devil, and his demonic hordes. We have an adversary who aims to steal, kill, and destroy, and we are called on in scripture to resist him and to engage in spiritual warfare. The activity of his hosts of darkness is no less real today than when Jesus walked the earth, and the Gospels abound with accounts of him delivering men and women from their clutches. And so people who share this biblical view want to know, do we believe that men in sexual sin need deliverance from demonic possession? Our answer to that question is an unequivocal yes. Of course we do. Men in sexual sin have opened wide the door to demonic activity in their lives and desperately need deliverance. But let me share our perspective on this and how it might be different than some of the voices on the subject. Many people believe that there are demons of lust, that that is their particular assignment and weapon, and that viewing pornography or engaging in sinful sexual behaviors opens the door to their activity. Some even use the term that the demons now have a legal right to harass and oppress. In effect, we have granted them permission to attack us. And many, it seems, teach that there is a specific ministry of deliverance that one should take advantage of. This ministry often includes prayers designed to gain freedom by binding and loosing demons, casting them out, canceling generational curses, renouncing soul ties, and that these prayers will set the prisoner free. 
Many a soul has been told that the reason they are tempted in the area of sexual sin, the reason they struggle or are even addicted, is because they have this demon. The demon is the problem. And if they are delivered from the demon, then they won't struggle anymore. A common side effect of this teaching is that the sinner now has someone else to blame for his own choices and his sinful behavior. The internet is littered with sites offering deliverance prayers that promise you that if you pray these words, there is power in the words themselves to set you free. Now, every Christian should believe in the power of prayer, in the need for faith in God, and in the promises of Scripture that God desires that we ask, seek, and knock. Jesus told us to pray in faith. But prayer should never be reduced to seeking a magic formula or a Christian incantation designed to render the desired effect. There is a whole segment of Christian teaching that deals with the area of deliverance, and it seems to be built on a few isolated texts pulled out of context to create a theology and a methodology of deliverance. If you say these words, or if you can find an anointed person who is a trained practitioner in deliverance, and if you do these specific things, then you will be delivered. That's what's out there. Let me just say that this has never been our experience. A great many of the men who have passed through pure life in the last 30 years went the deliverance route first with great faith and desire, only to come to us for help in the end. For the last few months, we've been producing an ongoing series of videos called 20 Truths That Helped Me In My Battle With Porn Addiction. In the seventh video in this series, Pastor Steve Gallagher talks about his own personal experience with trying to find freedom in a deliverance ministry. I want to begin this segment by referring back to my testimony again. It was 1984 and I was in trouble. I had had a powerful experience of repentance with the Lord two years earlier and quit my job on the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department to attend Bible school in Sacramento. But little by little, the enemy chipped away at my spiritual life until I finally gave up and backslid. Now I was back into sexual sin worse than ever. The problem was that even though I had repented of my rebellion to God's authority over my life and committed myself to wholeheartedly following Him, there was still lodged within me a stronghold in the area of sexual sin. This was the same serpent that had destroyed my resolve to follow Christ years earlier. So in 1984, the Lord seemed to lead Kathy and me to a little deliverance church in Sacramento. The thought that I could instantly be delivered of sexual sin by a pastor casting a demon of lust out of me flooded me with hope. Once again, I committed myself to the Lord and swore off indulging in sexual sin. We immediately started attending services at that little church at every opportunity. For three months, Kathy and I were given a steady diet of teachings on spiritual warfare and participated in numerous deliverance sessions. Members of the church would gather around me, laying hands on my shoulders and binding demons and ordering them to come out of me. I was thrilled by the possibility of being set free. 
But over time, I was forced to acknowledge to myself and my wife that nothing had really changed. Lust was thriving in my heart as vigorously as ever. Even before I arrived at this conclusion, I was already struggling with a nagging feeling that what I was hearing simply didn't line up with Scripture and didn't leave me with the sense that it was true. We finally decided that that church wasn't for us and quit attending services there. This was a bit confusing because we really had believed that the Lord led us there. Later, when I looked back on that experience, I could see why He sent us there. He knew our life's work would be in the area of helping believers find freedom from the hold of sexual sin. We really needed to experience for ourselves the fact that that kind of deliverance ministry simply doesn't work. And over the years, I would deal with many desperate people who wanted to know if there was any validity to the quick fix deliverance seemed to offer. I could say from experience that I'd been there and didn't find anything to it. So that leads me to the question about whether or not a Christian can have a demonic stronghold. Some ministers strongly claim that it would be impossible for a believer to have a demon. Others point at the reality of what they see, Christians bound up in various demonically inspired habits. Which group is right? I think I can offer some thoughts that will bring a little light on the subject. First of all, the Bible only uses the word stronghold in a spiritual sense one time. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Well, if you do a thorough study on the context of that chapter, you'll find that the Apostle Paul was having to defend himself against certain antagonists in the Corinthian church who were accusing him of ministering in the flesh. His statements were a defense against that accusation, and he was probably referring to the Greek idolatries lodged in the corporate consciousness of the masses living within the realm of the Roman Empire at the time. Actually, I think he did more to deal with the subject in Romans chapter 6. In that chapter, he said, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? According to Paul, it is sin that masters a person. And the truth is that demons are not even mentioned in either of these chapters. Having said that, I want to be quick to add that there is no question that demons play a significant role in the establishment of strongholds of sin within people. It's clear that the enemy exploits the power of habit in a person by leading him back to his pet sin over and over again until the love of that sin is deeply entrenched within him. They do this through the power of suggestion. What I mean by that is that demons have the ability to present to a person's mind memories of pleasurable experiences of the past, as well as the ability to conjure up fantasies of potential sexual encounters they can pursue in the immediate. So while I do believe the enemy plays a huge role in building the fortification, I think the actual stronghold is sin, not a demon. And there's a big difference between the two. 
The Apostle John offered important insight on the subject when he referred to the works of the devil in his first epistle. I'm pretty sure that these evil works are actually the spiritual strongholds we've been discussing. Of course, these works of the devil can only occur with the willing compliance of the victim. In other words, the door to a person's heart can only be opened from the inside. Therefore, the enemy vigilantly watches for any opportunity to gain entrance. Once a demon is allowed to establish a foothold of sin within a person's soul, it's often only a matter of time before he solidifies it into a stronghold. The works of the devil often manifest themselves as fetishes, phobias, hang-ups, or addictions. Just the kind of nasty slime one would expect a serpent to leave behind. By establishing a stronghold of sin within the person, the enemy is able to gradually deform the person's character into something as ugly, corrupted, and morally repulsive as they are. They accomplish this by building up intricate webs of pride, ambition, lust, selfishness, and faulty thinking within the person. The greater the person's compliance with the enemy, the more his soul will be depleted of anything good and meaningful. But consider the Apostle John's amazing insight into how the Lord can reverse the enemy's efforts found in the third chapter of his epistle. He said, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And this is my testimony to you, that the Lord has the power to demolish any stronghold the enemy has erected within you. We'll get into how he does that in future segments, but for now, let me just assure you of this. Whom the Lord sets free is free indeed. Now I hear a listener saying, so is the work of the enemy in sexual sin really that small a deal? Because I really feel completely bound. I know what it's like to have an overwhelming temptation come upon me, and I feel as if I have no power to resist it. If only I could be delivered from these temptations, I would be fine. Are you saying there's no need for deliverance? No, that's not what we're saying. We absolutely believe that the enemy has real power over people's lives. As I said before, his influence is just as real today as it has ever been. What we're saying is that someone does not need an experience of being delivered from a demon. It's just not that simple. I know that for the man who is bound by sexual sin, this problem seems insurmountable. It is bigger than you, and if you could get free on your own, you would have done it by now. You need a great deal of help. But we want you to see that God is after so much more in you than just getting rid of your sexual sin. The problem is actually bigger than you thought. That's why we have been doing this series of podcasts, because it takes more than just a deliverance prayer. God wants to build your faith. God wants to show you your sin and make you take responsibility for it and stop blaming everyone else for your own choices. In other words, he wants to lead you into real repentance. He wants to teach you how to turn from your sin 
And he's after far more than your sexual sin. He wants to root out your anger, fear, anxiety, unbelief, hatred, bitterness, and apathy. He wants to teach you to humble yourself and come way down in your pride. He wants to teach you how to fight and to resist temptation when it comes. He wants to teach you real and complete surrender to his will and submission to his reign over your life. He wants to lead you into biblical consecration, the offering of your life as a living sacrifice. And he wants to lead you into the pursuit of holiness, what the Bible calls our sanctification. This is what God is after in the life of every believer, and not just freedom from one or several life-dominating sinful habits. He doesn't just want your sexual sin. He wants the transformation of your entire life. In our DVD curriculum, At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry, our Director of Ministry Outreach, Nate Dancer, shares a powerful teaching that describes the strategies of the enemy that we must learn to overcome. All right, let's get started with segment two. The objective for this segment is to outline some of the specific schemes that the enemy will use to lure people into sin. But before I go there, I have to make a couple preliminary remarks. Firstly, when I approach this subject for this audience, I have to approach it from from the position of a believer, okay? Because if you're not born of the Spirit of God and reborn, then you evading certain tactics of the enemy may help you temporarily, but it's not going to help you eternally, Okay, you'll still die and go to hell, even if you get rid of the sexual sin, because that's not the issue. If we could be acceptable before God by just amending our ways, then um, salvation would be by works and not by grace. So we're not going to deal from it, or deal with it from the perspective of behavior modification, but an actual sincere believer who is fighting his way out of a pattern of behavior. Okay, and then the secondly, because I'm dealing with it from the perspective of a believer, we have to understand the relationship between demonic influence and the believer's choice. An unsaved person has no choice. He's controlled by the uh, fallen nature. So he may do some good things, he may do some bad things, it doesn't matter. Okay, now a believer has been born again of the Spirit of God. He's been given a new nature which is made in the image of Christ. And so now he has a chance to live according to the will of God. So the question is, for our purposes, how is the enemy going to try to reassert dominance over a true believer's life? How is he going to try to bring him back into bondage um, to something that the cross set him free from? Okay. Um, Now, again, we can't outline all of the specific schemes that the enemy would use because they're not cookie cutter. He doesn't have a playbook that's just kind of like, okay, now I do this, and then I do this, and now I do this. He, again, is extremely intelligent, and he knows who you are. And so he's going to custom fit a 
plan of temptation for you, which is based on your upbringing, your experiences, your personality, your culture, your current spiritual condition, that sort of thing. All right, so this is not a, this is not a um, static playbook, but a fluid strategy. So let me illustrate it this way, okay? Um, depending on who you are, the devil can try to convince you that he has more power in your life than he actually does, which can lead you into despair, condemnation, unbelief, try to get you to give up, or he can try to convince you that he has less power in your life than he actually does, which leads you into presumption and careless living, lawlessness. Okay, so there's two sides to every coin, and there's, there's a straight and narrow road, and on both sides there are gonna be errors. And at times he's gonna seek to lead you into one or the other depending on how you're doing, <laughs> okay? So he can use people that are close to you or he can use strangers. He can use times of comfort or times of pain. He can use poverty, he can use riches. He can use hardship or ease. So in one sense, we can never really nail him down, <laughs> but I have very good news for you we can identify some broad categories of tactics that he will always use for a person that's trying to come out of sexual addiction. All right, you may not be able to list them all, but I'm gonna give you five that I believe are universal. Strategy number one is intimidation. Now, once a person's conscience becomes sensitized to some form of sin, and especially when we're talking about addiction, he's gonna start to see it through like permeating his whole life. He's not just gonna see, oh, yeah, I guess I'm a little selfish. He's gonna say, I'm completely selfish. He's not gonna say, yeah, I guess I lusted like once, maybe back in the day. It's like my whole life is one pattern of lust, right? So you start to see this, and this is helpful to bringing you into reality and it's helpful for bringing you into the fear of God and it can help you to really thoroughly repent of your lifestyle. But the enemy is going to also try and capitalize on this by putting his demons around you and tempting you and taunting you and throwing everything he can to this effect. You will never overcome this sin. It's just pure intimidation. Your conscience becomes sensitized and you start to see, this is what I'm like, this is sin, I want to change. And so you determine to fight. What's it like the next time you leave your house and you go to Walmart? It's crazy. I mean, everything in you is burning with temptation, desire, lust. It's like your eyes are on fire, your heart's bumping out of your chest, your cold sweats. You know what I mean? Have you ever felt that before? That is pure intimidation tactics. He's the devil is trying to get you to believe every day of your life will be just like this moment right now. You will never get victory. You might as well quit. It's just straight intimidation. Now let's say that you beat the enemy on this point and you're still determined to fight. You say, you know what? I'm fighting. I don't care what you say, I'm fighting. Um, strategy number two is to attack you at your vulnerabilities. 
Okay, so now it's not gonna be this wide kind of shotgun mentality. He's gonna start zeroing in on things that he knows you're weak in. And in my um, experience, I believe this is true, that typically it's the things that we've given ourselves over to most wholeheartedly, the things that we've been entrenched in the longest, these are our weakest areas. These are strongholds. And so he's gonna start narrowing his focus to hit you in those places because he knows that's where you're most vulnerable. So let's talk about two roommates. We'll call them Jake and Mike, all right? Jake never really gave himself over to much more than fantasy and masturbation. He had kind of a reserved personality. He wasn't gonna go out looking for prostitutes, but every day he fantasized and masturbated. He would look at women and then he would come home and he would use that to fuel his lust. Okay, now on the other hand, you've got Mike. Mike was extreme in his personality. Fantasy and masturbation, what, you know? That worked for like 10 minutes. And then it's, I gotta do prostitutes and it's gotta be um, escort services, massage parlors, that kind of thing. All right, these two men are gonna have very different experiences when they're fighting their way out of sexual addiction. So let's say that both of them work at the same place and they ride to work together in the morning and their route happens to go past the red light district. Not smart, but let's just say for use of illustration. Jake, on the one hand, he might have some fleeting thoughts here about, oh, I wonder what's down there, but he's never gone there. He's never done it. So he just pushes it off and he goes about his day. Mike, on the other hand, is like a caged animal. He's like, you know, he's really, really, this is a major temptation. This is serious for him. Now, Jake's temptation is gonna happen later on at night when he's about to go to bed because that, that was the place he always gave over. So fantasy is gonna flood him at that point and he's gonna be very tempted to give over to masturbation whereas Mike just jumps in bed and goes to sleep. Right? It's, it's just very different. He attacks us at our weakest points. So you have to learn what it is that really um, where you're weak and you have to concert your effort there as well. All right? Now, if those two things don't work, intimidation and attacking you at your vulnerable places, he's gonna start to be a little bit more subtle. Strategy number three is to offer you an alliance. And I think that everyone who's watching this teaching should go back and reread chapter 10 over and over and over until it's ingrained in your mind. Because the whole point of that chapter is that the world is the devil's ally. It belongs to him. That system, cosmos, belongs to him. And if he can get you to form an alliance with the world, it's exactly the same as shaking hands with the devil. There's no difference. And so he's gonna do everything he can to get you to keep things in your life that are basically a recipe for failure. If you don't cut off the things that contribute to your sexual addiction, you're consigning yourself over to failure. You might as well just make that, in, you know, make that connection in your mind. I want to fail. I do not want to change. Let's say 
This is a little bit of a lighthearted illustration, but let's say that you meet a friend for pizza, all right? And as you're talking, he starts complaining. Man, I just, it seems like all the time I've got joint pain and I've got headaches and I'm weak and um, I've got stomach problems, intestinal problems. And you say to him, wow, really? How long has this been going on? Oh, years. I've been to the doctor and they give me medication and it helps a little take the edge off and it's sort of bearable, but I never really feel normal. And you say, wow, what's, what's the diagnosis? Oh, I'm allergic to gluten. You're eating pizza. You know, I mean, so basically what he's saying is, I like the source of the pain. I just don't like the pain. And that is what happens when you love the things of the world. You love the source of the temptation. You just don't like the temptation. You're fueling the thing that causes you to have those desires. And if you don't cut them off at the source, you are asking for problems. At best, you'll live a horribly um, anemic, weak Christian life, and at worst, you will go right back to where you came from and end up in hell. Okay? (laughs) All right. So let's say that we have done our part on one, two, and three, right? We've fought through the intimidation. We are reinforcing our our weakest points and we're cutting off the source of the pollution. He's going to turn and he's going to do something else. It's even more subtle. This is to cut off your reinforcements. And one thing about the Christian life that we all have to get into our head is that the new life which Jesus offers to us is borrowed and not implanted. Okay, now what I mean by that, I'm not trying to make a theological statement. All I'm saying is that it's not intent, he doesn't give it to us once and for all. And then we can just kind of do whatever we want and that new life is just gonna spring up and overtake us. It's not like that. We, when we come to Christ and are born again, we're engrafted into the vine. And from the vine flows spiritual life. That's what gives us power to live the Christian life, to say no to temptation. It's what purifies our hearts and our minds and gives us the um, kind of the uh, resolution to say no to the flesh and say yes to the spirit. If the devil can cut you off from the vine, all you have left is you. That's bad. Because all you'll do is just do what you've always done. All right? And so this idea of being connected to the vine is massively important. And at Pure Life Ministries, you've learned two disciplines that are absolutely spiritual, solid gold. (laughs) Staying in the word and staying in prayer. Because when you are communing with Christ through the word and through prayer. Life is literally flowing into your soul. The power of God is coming into you. I'm not talking about you feel this unbelievable thing and then you're a mighty man of God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about he's renewing your mind day by day. He's, he's changing who you are and he's, he's um, winning you over bit by bit. 
till one day you find out, I love him. I don't want those things anymore. And when I have periodic slips or temptations or whatever, I just, I go back to him because that's what I want. Okay, so the enemy will fight you on your quiet time. I'm tell- he will fight you. I, it does not matter to him what the lies are or what the rationalizations are. He's got millions. As long as he can get you from being there, he's happy. So I'm too busy and whatever. I've got too much to attend to. He's like, yes, that's fine. Or, um, you know, you aren't getting anywhere with these devotional times. Your heart's too hard. And so you say, yeah, I guess that's true. He's like, win. (laughs) Or he tells you, you know, man, reading the Bible, it's so complicated. You don't understand hardly anything you're reading and prayer is so complex and it's confusing and -and so-and-so says this and -and so-and-so says that. You might as well just, you know, don't worry about it. You're like, yeah. Win. Cut you off at your reinforcements and as soon as as that happens, you start to die. And it's just a matter of time before you comes out again instead of Jesus. All right? Strategy number five is to retreat. And I've experienced this at times in my life, and I think all of you will, where you have fought through strategies one through four, and you're starting to live a life of victory. Victory is the norm in your life. That will happen. Victory will become the norm. All right? And so one of the things that the devil will do is when that starts to happen, sometimes he'll just kind of step back. All right. Let's see what happens. Do they put down their guard? Do they start to get confident in themselves? Do they start to play more than be serious about their walk with God? What happens? Do they start to bring in a bunch of other things which are harmless in and of themselves, but kind of amassing a whole system of life around them that doesn't really have as much to do with the Lord? And then when you're weak, it comes back in. All right, and so then you are gonna have to do what? You're gonna have to fight battles one through five again. Maybe not as intensely as they were, but you'll have to do that. And then victory is gonna be the norm in your life because Jesus Christ is the conquering king. And if you do things his way, he will win. Not you, but he. Christ living in you will win. Praise God. So I believe I've given you five universal strategies that the devil will use. And you need to, I I would encourage you to come up with some others that you can see, patterns in your life that are specific to you and learn how to fight those strategies. But mainly, while you're doing that, I would encourage you to also meditate on this. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. That is his goal. The goal of Jesus is to destroy the works of the devil in your life. 
so that where you've given yourself over to all kinds of destruction and destroyed other people, he's going to come in and he's going to bring reconciliation. He's going to bring healing. He's going to bring, he will um, renew the years of your youth and he will give you back what the locusts have eaten. That's his promise. Praise God. The apostle Peter wrote, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. This world is not a playground, but a battleground. And every Christian should remain in the fight. But we're also reminded by John that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If you're interested in the 20 Truths series, please check out our YouTube channel. And we'd also like to remind you that our DVD curriculum, At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry, is a powerful resource for those who are looking to find real, lasting deliverance from sexual sin. Just go to store.purelifeministries.org. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.